Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Your eyes are not deceiving you. I do have for you a 10-point sermon this morning. And I only have, I realize I only have 10 minutes per point, so I will do my best. Really, though, um, I wanted to preach this passage um, in a way that walks us through seeing all the many um, really very intriguing and interesting and blessed um, topics that are dealt with in this very short story. It's just a story of, really, of one man sharing Christ with another man, a personal evangelism story, you might say. But it, in telling the story, gives us a, back, a background that is probably the way it usually works. It's not that it's the model or it's uh, commissioning us to go do it just like this, but it's describing for us um, in very vivid terms from God's perspective um, how He orchestrates such things, and especially this. This is a pivotal point in the the development of the early church. Um, Jesus promises to send His Spirit so that His disciples could be witnesses for Christ, first in Jerusalem, which we have watched um, the church start there in Jerusalem with the Holy Spirit coming, and it starts to grow. And then, not long after, persecution happens, and they get pressed for their faith, and Stephen dies. Uh, Stephen, the, the deacon, preaching boldly, is stoned to death by the religious leaders, and you would think that would squash the church, but Jesus promised to empower them. And so, Jerusalem had the gospel now, and the church was growing by the thousands, it tells us in the book of Acts. Then those who were being persecuted, who didn't live in Jerusalem, had to go back to their places of origin, and they had to scatter. And as they scattered, they went from Jerusalem to Judea, the greater state in which Jerusalem finds itself, and they spread the gospel. And then from Judea, we read last week, they went to Samaria, a place that used to be their historic enemies, the Jews anyways, and the gospel spreads to the Samaritans. Now, with this personal evangelistic interchange, you have Philip, one of the other deacons, preach the gospel or explain the gospel to a man from Ethiopia, the old kingdom of Cush in Africa. So already in just the first eight chapters of Acts, we see the gospel go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and now it's going to go to a person who will go away rejoicing, and we'll see it start to spread to the uttermost parts of the world. Please hear as I read God's Word, Acts chapter 8. I'll start at verse 26. I'll read down to verse 40. This is God's inspired and inerrant and therefore authoritative word for us. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. 
Now, the passage of the Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we are grateful for your word. We ask for your help to understand it. By the ministry of your spirit, please illuminate this text so that we might be deepened in our thoughts about you and spurred on to action with a greater security, a greater understanding of your sovereign watch care, your providential dealing, your prompting by the Spirit. Lord, spur us to be faithful witnesses for you, wherever we are in our walk with you, whatever level of maturity and knowledge we have. Lord, give us what we need that we might be able to declare Jesus. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you didn't grow up in a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, you probably were introduced to Christ through a a friend or a family member, maybe personally talked to you about faith in Christ, what the Bible means about Jesus. There probably was some kind of personal explanation about the message of the gospel that you remember. You probably remember a, a person or a few people who were really careful to share that specifically with you. And even if you did grow up in a solid Christ-centered church that preached the Bible, there probably was some point, maybe in the context of the church, your parents, um, a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, somebody made clear to you what you had been learning, and you've been reading the Bible and wondered about it, and it had been taught to you more clearly by someone. Maybe you remember somebody sharing that message with you personally. There are many ways in which the Lord brings the gospel to people, the message of Christ in His payment for our sins on the cross and our need to believe on Him. Uh, The Lord disseminates that message many ways. Primarily, He does it through the message that the church preaches. From this pulpit and from its official ways of teaching, the gospel goes forward as an exposition of the Scripture's message. But clearly, we see in this episode, in the early church, early Christians who weren't necessarily ordained missionaries or pastors. In this case, we have a couple of deacons who are the most effective early evangelist in the church, recorded anyways. Stephen first and now Philip. It's certainly an encouragement to all of us to be about declaring Christ when God ordains opportunity to come forward. And sometimes he is prompting us and we need to be obedient to that prompting in the relationships you have, ones you're developing, normal circumstances that 
will just come up by God's providence and his appointment, and you'll have opportunity to just give declaration to Christ. Now, I, I don't want anyone to get anxious or feel like I'm going to give you an assignment to go out and to witness to so many people. All I'm asking you to do is what I ask you to do every week. Pray with me as I'm preaching that God's will would be done in our church's life and that we would be impacted by this story in Scripture in a way that affects us. And it will be different for everybody, but I'm sure we'll all have opportunities at some point in our time to share who Christ is, explain what the Scripture means about Jesus. We can all do that. And part of our responsibility as church leaders is to give you enough exposure to the Word and explanation of the Word so that you become effective ambassadors in your going. Because that's where the most effective disseminating of the message of the gospel will happen is through the members of the church living it and then speaking it most importantly when the opportunity arises. Philip's encounter that we come to here, it's an exciting story. His encounter with the Ethiopian was not by chance. We know that because the text is very clear. But I would suggest that the whole of the Bible's teaching on God's sovereignty means nothing's by chance. His encounter with the Ethiopian was not by chance. In fact, it's really a picture, in this case, of evangelism, the declaration of Christ, the message of the gospel. It's a picture of evangelism in relationship to the sovereignty of God and how they work together. It should work to encourage us in our own efforts. Let's walk through the passage. And it's true, I have for you 10 bullet points. This is just meant to walk us through the themes of each of these verses or the topics or the subject that we glean from what we see in this story. The story is a bit of an anatomy of a personal evangelistic encounter. Uh, It doesn't work identically in this order every time. I'm not suggesting a formula. Just as a way to see how this episode unfolds and as a way to encourage us about God's sovereignty and our responsibility in bringing the gospel to the world. But let's just start with our friends. Verse 26 begins down to verse 28 with this intermixing of God's sovereignty and His providence as back themes, if you will. When I talk about God's sovereignty, I'm referring to the biblical teaching that that God is sovereign or powerful over all events. Um, Sovereignty refers to God's determination about happenings, whereas providence has to do with God's personal workings according to His will, the the personal touch on things to make them unfold the way He sovereignly wills. His sovereignty is the big picture. His providence is the personal touch. He's not um, a sovereign or cosmic watchmaker who just devises a watch, winds it up, puts it down, and walks away, and it does what it does. God is the sovereign one. He's also intimately involved over all the gears. There's nothing that is out of His grasp. He's providentially working under the umbrella of his sovereign will. Verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So God's will, his sovereign will, is what we see unfolding, that he is going to meet a man who's sovereignly appointed in a certain place. But providentially, the way in this case God moves is to prompt by an angel telling Philip. It's not always going to be that way, we know, but he prompts providentially Philip to do something that will connect with or will be part of his sovereign will. 
He tells Philip, rise, go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. It would be an unlikely place. Clearly, he would have to be moved in this direction. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So much in just these three verses, both about God's sovereignty and about God's providence at work in this meeting. God sovereignly decreed and ordained that this Ethiopian official would be in Jerusalem when he was there. God's sovereign decree had this man on his way out of Jerusalem with a scroll of Isaiah in his hand. God's sovereign appointment placed Philip in the region. Philip, a man with knowledge of the exact questions the official needed answered. God's sovereignty had determined, by the way, thousands of years ahead, before that even, that this meeting would happen. How do we know? In the Old Testament, we're first introduced to Cushites, those who were from the kingdom of Cush. In fact, Moses married a Cushite woman. Then in the time of Solomon, he met with the queen of Sheba, who was also from that region. And they had a long interchange of questions and answers. So there was knowledge among the Cushites of the God of the Bible in the Old Testament at that time. There was knowledge of this through Solomon and Sheba at least. Then we come to the prophecy of Isaiah some 300 years after Solomon, 700 years before this meeting between Philip and the official. And Isaiah looks ahead through the Spirit of God at a time when the message of Yahweh would come to the Cushites. They were under immediate judgment for the rebellion, but the look ahead, if you remember back to Isaiah, Isaiah 45, is that the Cushites would receive the declaration of the message that this very official was reading from Isaiah 53. So the sovereign plan of God was at work in this meeting that looked like chance on the front. But his providence and his sovereignty worked together to bring together Philip in this official of Candace's court. You know, this is clearly part of the redemption story in Scripture laid out, and it's giving us insight that we, don't ha- we won't have about the particulars of our lives. And most of what happens in our lives is not that amazing. Probably not that amazing in Philip's life either. This is just that event. But make no mistake, there's nothing haphazard about what goes on in your life. There aren't chance meetings. They are on, in our experience, and we wonder about this the reason for this or the reason for that. But the sovereign God of the universe oversees all of these things and he's providentially at work in all matters and especially matters related to declaring Christ. This gives us encouragement, I think. It gives us sensitivity to look at our life with a different kind of purpose. You know, sometimes people, when uh, something happens that really makes them aware of God's presence, they'll say, God was really at work when he... True but he was no less at work when you didn't recognize it. And the more we see that and come to appreciate the sovereign watch care of God, 
the more the whole of our life changes in perspective, the purpose of our life, and the ability to deal with things we don't have answers for, because we will not have answers for a great many things, and that frustrates us. But life is much shorter than we think. It will have answers or clarity about its ultimate purpose eventually. But for now, we can rest in the sovereignty of this God who's not a chance God. Notice how the providence of God works itself out with the ministry of the Holy Spirit in verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, we we assume this could be an audible voice or it just could be descriptive of the Spirit making clear, go over and join this chariot. This is part of God's providential work in the life of believers. Now, I don't mean to say that it's normally the way the Spirit would work by talking. In fact, I would suggest that as you see the book of Acts unfold and the apostles are working through their ministries and then the letters of the Scripture are being written by God's Spirit, the deposit of the early church's great contribution to us are the inspired books of the Bible that we have, of the, the Scriptures. So the need for audible talking by the Spirit is lessened as the Scripture is completed. So it's, there's a good reason we don't hear voices all the time um, of the Spirit speaking because we have the direction of His Word, and the Spirit works with His Word. That's no less the Spirit's involvement, by the way. That's not less spiritual than hearing a voice. In fact, we have the deposit of the Holy Spirit's work, which is the will of God, the Scriptures, and we depend on the Scriptures for guidance, and we take our cues from where God gives us instruction. But here in this case, in this stage, the Spirit speaks to Philip and says, go over, join his chariot, prompting Philip, really for us to be sensitive to the Spirit's guidance, to recognize what it is that would be God's will. Would God want us to share the message of Christ with someone? We'd say yes in general. doesn't mean every case will allow it that for that, but in general, that would be. If we see a situation that may arise, we could have opportunity, we should jump at that opportunity. Be sensitive to what the Lord may be orchestrating. Who are the people that are around you? Where has God placed you? What opportunity might there be to build a relationship that eventually brings, comes to a place where you can shed light on who Jesus is? Now, we have seen God's undeniable sovereignty in the way this passage sets up, but we see something else we see Philip act out responsibly. He responds to what he is prompted concerning. Verse 30, the Spirit speaks. Now, I know what you're thinking. If an angel talked to me and the Spirit talked to me, I'd do what Philip did too. Maybe that's true. But Philip, I love this, after the Spirit tells him, Philip ran to him. He did not hesitate. He goes, I know this is God's will. I'm running to him and I'm going to talk with him. And as he got closer, he hears him reading aloud Isaiah. We don't know that Philip knew this before he hears it, so he's going to speak to this man. Now, imagine this. This man is, has an entourage, a caravan, if you will, chariots, very expensive. He would have been a, a very regal-looking, brown-skinned man. It wasn't from those parts. Clearly important, clearly learned. He has, a, he has a scroll, very expensive to have your own scroll. He's able to read it aloud. Clearly, there would be something intimidating about approaching this kind of royalty, this kind of importance. But the Lord tells him and prompts him, and that's why he's there. And he, he responds. He goes. He knows his role is to go there and find out what he can do. What could he share? What could he be of service for God concerning this man? So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah. He probably was a little relieved. This is great. I mean, I know this book. He hears him reading Isaiah. And by the way, you all do too, right? You're ready for this. The Lord knows what you're ready for. That's the other thing. He, he knows what you're ready for. And if it's a passage you don't know, 
there's nothing wrong with saying, I'll go find out what this means. But don't be afraid. You know the scriptures. You know the story of the scriptures is Jesus. So do not be afraid of having to answer questions about the Bible or not being able to answer them at the spot. That's fine. You could come back with the answer. Their eternity is not weighted on you getting the right answer at that moment. The Lord has ordained these things. That's part of what we have confidence concerning when we read this kind of passage. Philip ran to him, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked the question, do you understand what you're reading? Do you get this? Prompted by the Spirit, he, he just goes, he responds, he, is, he takes obedience to be a messenger, an ambassador seriously, and he, he takes it upon himself and he responds. It's, you know, it's true God is absolutely sovereign, but in the life we live, we are called to respond to God's commands, to his calls. We know who gets credit for any good thing we will do. But that should never paralyze a person to think, I won't do anything. That makes no sense. That's not the right response. That God is completely in control of all events and the reason anything of profit happens should only compel us to bravery to go share this message that has saved us. And so personal responsibility is the the joyful acceptance of the stewardship of the gospel we've been given based on nothing good in ourselves. And so he goes, and he hears him reading Isaiah out loud. He says, do you know what you're reading? You know, there are many ways to engage people, but knowing the message of the Bible is one of the most uh, effective ways that you can do it. And um, any one of you right now has enough knowledge of Scripture to start to engage that discussion with others, to know that the Bible on the whole is really about the person of Christ. You'll hear all sorts of of generalizations uh, about what the Bible teaches and passages will be pulled out just to show, look at how extreme this God is. I don't... As you grow in your faith, and I think many of you are already in a place now where you could piece this together, you know that those those are extreme, those are pulled out of context, they're used in ways just to, really by a person who doesn't want to talk about their responsibility to give answer to Christ's claims. That's usually what critics do. They'll say some, one or two verses they think will discount the Bible. Now you leave me alone. Don't leave them alone. In love, say, you know, I don't think what your understanding of that is exactly what's meant there. The Bible on the whole is about Jesus. And even that extreme passage in the Old Testament you're reading about had a purpose in its time, and you have to really see it in its full context. It's not a mandate about how we should do everything necessarily. Sometimes it might be, but the point is, tie it back to Jesus, the Bible's a great place to start when it comes to sharing Christ, especially because you'll hear a lot of stuff today. I actually hear more today than I've heard in the past. There's more ignorance about the Bible today than there ever has been, but that gives you an opportunity to shed light on the truth of the Scripture. And that's exactly what we see coming to pass here in this episode, verse 31 down to verse 33. There's an actual dealing or reading of the text of Scripture itself. He said, how can I unless someone guides me? I don't know what this means. He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the Scripture that he was reading was this. So he has the the revelation of God's Word there. And and this is an important part of our sharing Christ, to speak with the words that the Scripture speaks about Christ. Um, There is no Jesus apart from the Jesus revealed in God's Word. God had to reveal himself to us by Scripture. People don't naturally get a correct view of who God is. People know there's a God, 
That's natural. That's rational. I mean, a rational person knows there's a God. They say they know. They're just saying that you can't tell me who God is is really what an atheist is saying. Uh, there is a God. I mean, just look at the tree. Someone made the tree. That's rational. The problem is they don't know who he is, and they can't come to correct understanding on their own. Christianity is, without apology, a revealed religion. God has to reveal himself, and he does so through his Son, and the prophets and the apostles are prophets and apostles of his Son. And that's why we have his word safeguarded by him, and we have his revealed word and will. That's the Scripture. So in witnessing or sharing about Christ, we have to go to what the Scripture says about him. And that's what happens here by God's providence perfectly, the text from Isaiah 53. Now, you'll notice the wording is slightly different from what we've read in the exact passage in our Old Testaments. That's because the Ethiopian official is quoting from the Greek version of the Old Testament here. That's what was circulated among especially non-Hebrew-speaking Jewish people, which we might surmise he is, a convert to Judaism. That's why he was coming to Jerusalem. Like a sheep, he was shed to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Now, you and I right away are saying, because we've come through a three-year sermon series on Isaiah, and you knew before I preached it to you that Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. But the Jews of that day were not teaching that. They were teaching this is about Isaiah. They were not teaching a Messiah who would be suffering. This was the prophet Isaiah speaking about Isaiah. But that couldn't be right, the Ethiopian was thinking. That just can't be right. And this is where the interpretation of the word, the correct interpretation of the word, comes to play. He knows something isn't right about it. Why do I think that? Well, he came to Jerusalem to worship. Why on his way out is he stopped reading the Bible? What I heard back there didn't write, isn't quite right. Something is not, I, I don't get what this means. And God's appointment brings Philip, and Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? No, I don't. Someone's got to show me. Look what this says. Is this about Isaiah? No, it's not. No, it's not, Philip says. Verse 34, the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or somebody, someone else? Here's the greatest, this, this is what I should have named the sermon. I named it on Monday, and I always change my mind by Wednesday, but it's too late. Then Philip opened his mouth. I don't want you to be anxious about sharing your faith, but you've got to open your mouth. You have to be able to explain very simply how a person's sins can be forgiven. And you can. You can do this. I'm not saying go out there right now and go to me ranchitos and go in there immediately and tell everybody, you know, I got something I really want to tell you. Maybe, but really what I'm saying is in your normal life, life operation and work, the world you live in, you will have opportunities if you're sensitive to the Spirit's guidance it may be continuing to develop a relationship looking for that opportunity, but at some point, Tony has to open his mouth. Now, I know you, you do all the time. Okay, you have to open your mouth too about these things. Uh, it's, it's very stark in the passage. After all this thing happened, he'd already been talking. Philip was already talking. But then it said, after, now it becomes evangelism. You could call whatever you want the rest of it pre-evangelism or important to support the work of evangelism, important. But the evangelism starts now. Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. 
It's not evangelism just to make relationships with other people or to do kind things for them. We should do them. There's biblical basis for why we do them, even if they don't become Christians. But evangelism is rightly interpreting who Jesus is in explaining it and declaring it. That, that's what evangelism is. It's a declaration of Christ. And this interpretation of the Word makes that clear as he takes the passage and explains Jesus is fulfilled in the passage, and then he's able to show the whole of the biblical story is really about Christ. From Genesis all the way to Numbers to the book of Proverbs to you name the book, it's about Christ ultimately, and he's able to show the official how this is so. A, a sound interpretation of the word is able to reveal this. In evangelism on its own, verse 35, let's consider this just a bit more carefully. Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, this scripture, he told the good news about Jesus. I would challenge all of us to be very clear on the good news about Jesus. Don't make it more complicated and don't oversimplify it. Very simply, how can sinful people be made right with a holy God? They can only be made right with a holy God by faith in Jesus Christ in our stead. However you want to explain that, you can do it. We can do it. We can be ready to give an account when people ask for the hope that's within us. And that's really what they're asking in many ways when they're maybe telling us something. They're really asking us. We're able to express it. However your personality is wired, however your spheres of social influence work, just be ready and able to open your mouth and evangelize. Notice I did not say, make them pray a prayer with you, sign a card, make a response. That's not evangelism. That is not evangelism. Evangelism is sharing Christ. God is sovereign over who responds. Now, it's wonderful to, to invite them to discipleship and growth and to consider, but evangelism is not going out and coming back with a report of all the people that make commitments. Philip opened his mouth and began, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. At its core, that's what evangelism is, telling the story of Christ. You can tell it very personally, you could share your story, but ultimately, the core of it is what God has done through Christ. J.I. Packer, in his book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, <clears throat> wrote, There's only one means of evangelism, namely the gospel of Christ explained and applied. There's only one agent of evangelism, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one method of evangelism, namely the faithful explanation and application of the gospel message. Now, what comes next? Verse 36, out and out, there is here now a profession of faith. You say, well, I don't see him professing his faith explicitly. Well, look at verse 36, and you'll see what I mean. And as they were going along, so he had explained to the Ethiopian, he explained him very carefully the message of the gospel. It says he did, the good news of Christ through the, that beginning scripture and then the rest. And they're going along. And then the, the, the Ethiopian notices there's some water and he wants to be baptized. See here, it's water. What prevents me from being baptized? You see, the desire to be baptized is his profession of faith. And very carefully, baptism itself for a first-generation believer like this, that is a profession of faith. Uh, that's, that, that, that they go together. It doesn't mean you're, it saves you. It just means it's your official profession of faith is baptism. And that's what you have happening here, him professing his faith by way of obedience to baptism. Now, some of you probably noticing in your Bibles, wait a minute, it goes from verse 36 to verse 38, have you noticed that? 
Uh, the reason for this is in the King James Version, where we first get the numbers for the verses, um, it used a particular Greek text that had additions, not very many, don't freak out, additions that we know about, we're clear about. They were added when Erasmus put together the Greek text that was largely used as the basis for the King James Version, which comes from Jerome's Vulgate. There's a bunch of text families. We know exactly what happened. There's no big flaw or anything like that. But there's a verse in verse 37 in the, in the received text that they had at that time that clearly, it's very clear that it isn't in the oldest manuscripts. It was something Erasmus thought should be in there. And so scholars rightly note it. In the King James, it'll still be there, but it'll note this verse was probably an addition. It doesn't change the meaning at all. It says something like, and the, the official believed with his whole heart, something like that. It's an addition that someone put it. We have a few cases like this that we know about explicitly, and they're in your study Bibles. Normally, we'll point them out. But verse 36 is the passage itself that explains his profession. See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, baptism itself is something that is meant to identify people with God. It's, we would say, from our tradition of understanding, that it's the fulfillment of what circumcision was in the Old Testament, identifying people with God. So, first-generation people that come to God would be circumcised, like Abraham, and then his children after to be identified with their covenant-keeping God. Now, that's a longer, more involved application of theology. But for right here, this is a man who is a first-generation convert. He believes and wants to be baptized. Now, look at the particular language before Baptist brethren get too excited about what this says. The eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? The word baptized does mean immerse oftentimes, but in certain contexts, it could mean sprinkle, pour, apply, there's wash. There are various uses for it. But yes, many times it is immerse. The problem here, though, with assuming that be the case outright, verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stop. Now, look what it says next. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So, a strict reading of the passage would simply say they went down into the water. That doesn't say they were immersed in it. They went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, both. And he, Philip, baptized him. So, whatever the case, many scholars think it's probably more like they waded into the water, and that's, they did this in antiquity, and they have proof of this, where people would go halfway into the water, pronounce liturgy of sorts, and pour water over the person's head, in other settings, maybe that's what happened. Really, we've never concerned ourselves too much with how much water. It's the point that water's to be used. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. So the idea is they went down into the water, maybe from the bank down into it. He baptized the Ethiopian. Then they came back up. And then from that point, they parted ways. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. He is identified through baptism with Christ. This is his outward expression of faith in Christ. What happens next? Well, the process repeats. Philip goes on his way. He shares Christ again. And we assume similar types of processes happen. That's how it works. It starts with God sovereignly appointing something, providentially overseeing all the details, the Spirit of God guiding in the process, a person that God prompts, acts responsibly, and shares the message of the gospel. 
The Word of God is central to the message of the gospel. You can't have the gospel without the Word of God expressing it. So revelation from God is there. There's a right interpretation of what it means, and it's expressed. It's proclaimed. That's what we call evangelism. God gives, in the passage here doesn't talk about what He does in the heart of the person who's hearing it. We read that in other passages. God takes the scales off their eyes, and they see it, and they profess their faith. And when they profess their faith, they're outwardly identified by baptism. Then what happens next? They go and tell other people, or the person who told them goes and tells others. It's a, it's a wonderful picture in the early church, a microcosm of how this big picture of the church grew, how we could see it in small personal form. In closing, it's very interesting, verse 40, you could read it really quickly and think, okay, that's the end of the story, move on to the next episode in chapter 9, which we will. But don't miss what happens. Philip found himself at Azotus, found himself. So he went on. Next, next thing he knows, he's at Azotus. You know what, where Azotus is? That's in the old city of Ashdod, which is a Philistine city. Now, we've already seen the gospel go to Samaria, a place that John, the apostle, thought should be scorched from the earth because they're the enemies. But now the gospel will come to Samaria just like Jesus promised. Now it's going to go to Africa. It's going to go to Cush because this man who just became a believer will spread that gospel, no doubt. Now Philip finds himself in old Philistine, in old Philistia, the other arch enemies of the Jews in the Old Testament. God will build his church and he will grow his church and he does so largely by these means as members of the church go and share and declare the message of Christ and churches are planted and established, right worship happens, the gospel goes forward in a, in a more forceful, formal, organized way, and then people are empowered in that body to go and share that message. And this is typically how God will grow His church. He passed through and preached the gospel to all the towns until He came to Caesarea. Let us be encouraged by this story of this personal evangelistic interchange between Philip in this Ethiopian eunuch so many years ago, may it empower us, strengthen us, embolden us to be God's witnesses as He has called us to be. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this wonderful episode in church history recorded for us by Your Word. I just pray, O Lord, that You would uh, encourage each of us to look for ways to be sensitive to opportunities that You bring in our path. For those who, who are in school and have friends that, know you, that don't know you, I pray that you would give them boldness to point them to Christ as Scripture lays him out, explains him, shows him to be. Pray for all of us as we interact with friends and neighbors, co-workers, family members, whatever the case may be, Lord, that you give us opportunity to open our mouths and simply apply Jesus to a situation by expressing what he has done for us, what the Scripture teaches about him, maybe what the Scripture teaches on the whole. We're able to have opportunities. Lord, you raise these, these occasions in our life. I pray that you'd prompt us, empower us to be faithful to respond. And Lord, I pray that many would come to Christ through the witness of your people as we faithfully, by your grace, share Jesus with everyone we know. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's together turn in preparation for the Lord's Supper, but we'll turn to 520. Let's stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2, a song, a hymn about Jesus and His righteousness. Verse 1 and verse 2, 520.